Well, the fact that we're in violet vestments reminds us of the great season of fasting, abstinence, and penance. That holy season of Lent is approaching fast. To help us prepare for a holy Lent, today let's spend some time reviewing the answers to a series of questions. Why is Lent 40 days long? What's the point of fasting? What's the point of abstinence? Why do we have Easter eggs? How have Lenten requirements changed and what's required now? What virtue, above all, are we especially trying to make progress in during Lent and why? And then we'll close with a few points to ponder. So the first question, why is Lent 40 days long? St. Jerome tells us that the number 40 symbolizes punishment and affliction. As a punishment for the sins and crimes of men during the great flood, the rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses spent 40 days in fasting and prayer in order to prepare himself to approach God, receive the Ten Commandments. As a penance for their sins, the people of Israel watered for 40 years in the desert before they could cross over into the Promised Land. Of course, we all know that our Lord spent 40 days fasting in the desert before setting out on his public ministry. According to St. Leo the Great and St. Jerome, Lent goes back to apostolic times. So why is Lent 40 days long? The 40 days of penance show our willingness to suffer in this life in reparation for our sins and to hold back the just anger of God who has loved us so much and whom we have offended so deeply. Second question, so what's the point of fasting? Where does this come from? The notion of fasting and reparation for sin stretches all the way back to Adam. Why is that? Those great fathers and doctors of the church, St. Basil the Great, St. John Chrysostom, St. Jerome, St. Gregory the Great all point out that the commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve was they were supposed to abstain from one particular kind of food. They weren't supposed to eat the fruit from one tree. But in their pride, they reached out and took of the fruit and ate it. So it's easy for us to see the symmetry between the first sin, which was not abstaining from food, and making reparation for sin by fasting, which is abstaining from food. There's another important aspect of fasting. When we commit a sin, our soul wills the evil, but typically our body cooperates. Because of this, our penance has to have two essential things. We have to have contrition in our soul, mortification of our body. Fasting, eating less food than normal in reparation for sin and to appease the anger of God, has been a key bodily mortification ever since the fall of Adam. Third question, so what's the relationship between meat and fasting? There are two important aspects of fasting. The first is depriving ourselves of some portion of our food. The second is abstinence, which nowadays means depriving ourselves to some degree from meat. The practice of abstinence harkens all the way back to the days just after the flood when two things happened. Noah first made wine and meat became a regular part of men's diets. According to St. Jerome, men had picked and eaten grapes before the flood, but Noah was the first man to have made grapes into wine. 
St. John Chrysostom notes that Noah first made wine for the express purpose of strengthening and cheering the labors and weakness of men. St. Jerome points out that Noah didn't realize how powerful wine was, which is why he wasn't guilty of a sin when he got drunk on the first batch of wine ever made in the history of the world. That great Benedictine, Dom Garanger, the founder of the Salem Congregation, points out that since men's lives were weakened and shortened after the flood, God permitted men to eat meat in order to give them additional strength, and he inspired Noah to make wine in order to give men additional nourishment. This is also why, since time of the flood, fasting has meant giving up meat to some degree, because, as Dom Garanger points out, quote, This food was given man by God out of condescension to his weakness and not as one absolutely essential for the maintenance of life. Its privation is essential to the very notion of fasting. Close quote. Fourth question. But isn't abstinence only from meat? What does wine have to do with anything? In the olden days, fasting even included abstinence from wine. But even in the more traditionally-minded Eastern rites, they've dropped this practice by now. Most people probably realize that for many centuries, eggs and milk products were also abstained from, since they're also animal food. Even to this day, they're forbidden in some of the Eastern churches, like the Coptic Catholics, for example, who basically have a vegan diet throughout the whole of Lent. The reason we give each other Easter eggs is because our ancestors couldn't eat eggs until Easter. Fifth question. Wait a minute, Father, did you say they couldn't eat eggs until Easter? I thought besides Ash Wednesday, abstinence only pertained to Fridays. In recent times, that's true. It only pertains to Fridays. But that's only because we're living in weak times. In the olden days, it wasn't true. For roughly the first millennium of the Latin Church, during Lent, only one meal a day was allowed, except on Sundays. And at this one meal that was allowed... Meat, eggs, butter, cheese, milk, and wine were strictly prohibited. Now, these foods were also banned on Sunday. In other words, no meat, no eggs, no butter, no lard, no cheese, none at all. None of this was eaten during Lent, Sunday or not. Then, since that wasn't actually tough enough for our ancestors, during Holy Week, they upped the ante. All they would eat during Holy Week was bread, salt, herbs, and water. And finally, as if that wasn't enough, this one meal a day was not allowed until after Vespers, which was sung at sunset, so they'd abstinence straight through till Easter. Then in the 10th century, things started slacking up a bit. The meal time, which used to be after sunset, crept down to 3 o'clock. How did that happen? What happened is that the time for Vespers got moved. To make sure uh, you know what we're talking about here, remember all the clerics uh, in the church uh, guys like Father and I, and also all the religious in the church that are bound to the office or bound to the pain of mortal sin, to say a series of psalms and prayers every day. It's called the Divine Office. It's contained in a book called the Breviary. Divine Office is broken up into different sections uh, to be said at different times of the day, ideally. These different sections of the Divine Office have a different name. Traditionally, there's a little bit different uh, situation in the, in the new office. But anyway, here's the old list that we say. There's matins, lauds, prime, terst, sext, known vespers, and compline. Now, traditionally, sext is said at the, at the medium of the sun at 12 o'clock. Known is said about 3, vespers said at sundown, okay? But what happens in the 10th century is the office of known starts to be recited right after midday is passed. 
And over the course of time during Lent, noon began to be regarded as beginning at midday. That's where we get the word noon. It now means midday and not three o'clock. The Lenten fast couldn't be broken until Vespers, traditionally at about sundown, or you know, roughly six. But by a gradual process, Vespers crept earlier and earlier into the day, till by the 14th century, Vespers could be said during the middle of the day in Lent. And since Vespers were set around noon, that meant that the mealtime had now crept down to midday. So that's where we had the big laxity coming in, huh? Shortly after this development, the practice of taking a small bit of food in the evening called a collation began to gain ground. Finally, about 200 years ago, the custom of taking a crust of bread and some coffee in the morning was introduced. Then gradually, over time, the Holy See allowed meat to be eaten during Lent, but only once a day at the meal. First, they allowed meat on Sundays, then gradually they allowed it on two weekdays, then three, then four, then five weekdays. In the United States in the early 1900s, during Lent, the second and last Saturdays and all the Wednesdays and Fridays were days of abstinence. And all the weekdays of Lent were days of fast. Only a hundred years ago, here in the U.S., the second last Saturdays of Lent and all the Wednesdays and Fridays were days of abstinence, and all the weekdays were days of fast. But remember, there are plenty of other days of fast and abstinence during the year. We're only talking Lent right here. Finally, before 1967, when the current rules came into effect, during Lent, abstinence had been reduced to Ash Wednesday and all the Fridays, and fasting was required on all the weekdays, except the Feast of the Annunciation. Now, here's the bottom line. In our sissified times, we now have two, two, you can count them, two days of obligatory fasting in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. We now have eight days of obligatory abstinence in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all the Fridays of Lent. We're only required to keep two days of fasting and eight days of abstinence. Folks, we live in weak, sissified times. Sixth question. So making reparation for sin is the whole point of fasting and abstinence then? That's not it at all. One of the most important fruits of a good Lent is growth and the virtue of temperance. In order to appreciate this, let's have a short review of why we need temperance and what temperance does for us. Remember, before the fall, Adam had the gift of integrity. The gift of integrity gave him perfect and total control of every one of his passions and emotions. For example, imagine for a moment that Adam looks over there and sees Eve doing something wrong, like she's talking to the serpent. He realizes, you know, this particular situation calls for anger. He would have decided to be angry then he would have been exactly as angry as was reasonable for exactly as long as was reasonable, and then he would have instantly stopped being angry, just like that, instantly. No calming down needed at all. Of course, that's something that, you know, we're not talking about the Blessed Mother, but the rest of us have no experience with. The gift of integrity gave Adam perfect control over his passions. Total control. Now, when Adam committed the original sin, God told him no, but Adam had his own plans, right? Since God is infinitely just, he let the punishment fit the crime. And one of the consequences was loss of the gift of integrity. Take this passion of anger, for example. Just ask yourself, have I ever been more angry than I ought to have been? Have I ever been angry for no good reason? 
have ever had a hard time calming down. You can't just decide, if you're really spun up, all right, that's enough, and then you're totally calm. We don't have that experience. Thanks a lot, Adam, because none of us have the gift of integrity. We don't have a perfect and complete control over our passions. And since we don't, unlike Adam before the fall, we can get led around by our passions and our emotions if we're not careful, huh? Now, remember how the punishment fits the crime. You can set up a little square in your mind to picture this. If you put God in the upper left corner and Adam in the bottom left corner and reason in the upper right corner and the passions in the lower right corner, you have this little square. So God over Adam, reason over passions. Well, Adam, who's supposed to be subject to God, says no and rebels. So as a just punishment, God takes away the gift of integrity so all of a sudden the passions can rebel against right reason. Okay? The passions don't simply just obey like Adam did. We've lost that gift of integrity. It's gone. So there's a, there, we have that rebellion in our flesh. Now, just as the subject Adam rebelled against the proper authority God, so also the subject of the passions can rebel against the proper authority, which is right reason. You can see how the punishment in this instance fits the crime. Hopefully we all remember there's a big $4 theological word that describes this condition of rebellion of the passions against right reason. It's concupiscence. Concupiscence means it's rebellion of the sense appetites, like our passions and our emotions, against right reason. Guess what? If our sense appetites, like hunger and thirst, for example, our passions, like anger, are rebellion against right reason, that means that instead of being led by reason, we can be led by our passions and our appetites, doesn't it? And I don't think you need the priest to tell you which way they'll lead us, do you? That's the whole problem with concupiscence. It inclines us strongly towards sin. Thanks a lot, Adam. So here we are. Since none of us has this gift of integrity, we're all suffering from this inclination towards sin that we call concupiscence. Now, if that isn't bad enough, just pause for a minute and think about the society that we currently live in. In this society, we're constantly bathed in appeals to our concupiscence. It's like nothing that's ever happened. No culture in the history of the world appeals to our sensual desires. For the most part, advertising is geared up to appeal to our fallen nature, to our um, passions and emotions. Just think about it. If you're looking at car advertisements, why is the half-dressed girl in the car all the time? What does that have to do with whether it's got a good engine, huh? I mean, what's that about? It's an appeal to concupiscence, okay? All this stuff that's being paraded in front of us, right? Sensual softness, comfort, pleasure, sweetness, softness. In all this, in spite of the fact that it's been well known since ancient times by the pagan nations as well as the Jews, and it's the constant teaching of the church, all the fathers, doctors, and the saints are unanimous on this, all of them. Pagans, Jewish fathers... Catholic Church, it's a constant battle for a man to conquer his passions and to bring them under the rule of right reason. To live a life of virtue, the passions simply have to be brought into submission. And it's impossible if they're constantly being excited. How can you bring them into submission when you're constantly keeping them spun up? It's totally impossible. Meditate on the world we find ourselves in. So compare all that soft, easy living that surrounds us with a life of virtue. In order to live a virtuous life, each one of us 
has to deny himself and take up his cross. We have to fight and struggle in order to bring our sensory appetites under the rule of reason. To deliberately or even indeliberately excite and inflame our passions is extremely dangerous for our spiritual well-being. Remember, either we lead our passions or our passions will lead us. And if in little things we're constantly caving in to our desires, we do that in little things, what's going to become of us when big things come hurtling down the path towards us? It's not a pretty thought. So we have either two choices. Either our passions serve us, or we serve our passions. And I submit to you that in our society, the vast majority of our friends and neighbors in our beloved country serve their passions. Their passions do not serve them. They're enslaved to their passions. We control our passions with the virtue of temperance. Temperance is the virtue which governs rebellious sense appetites by controlling our desire for sensual pleasures. It's the virtue that does battle with concupiscence. Since it governs our rebellious sense appetites, that means that temperance governs our desires for food and drink, our desires for procreation, and our desires for revenge. In other words, temperance is a virtue that fights the three deadly sins of lust, gluttony, and anger. So let's get practical. How can we grow in temperance? St. Andrew Avellini says that he who wants to advance to perfection should be serious about mortifying his appetite. St. Francis de Sales says that we do this by eating to live, but not living to eat. So we can grow in temperance by mortifying our appetite for food and drink, and this is one of the most important things that a good Lent can do for us. As we're fasting, not only are we making reparation for our sins, we're also growing in virtue of being strengthened. We're being made combat ready to conquer these cravings of concupiscence that we find within us. By growing in temperance, we can trample on all the temptations of these sinful times we find ourselves in. So now we have a context. We can understand the absolute importance of fasting and abstinence in the tradition of the church. We'll mention in passing two other ancient Lenten practices related to temperance. First, theaters were closed, actually closed for the duration. And second, the practice of forbidding uh, uh, marriages during Lent reminds us that continency used to be mandatory for all during this holy season. So much for history. Here's the current legislation of the church which binds us under the pain of mortal sin. All those who are 14 on up have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, in all six of the Fridays of Lent. All those from 18 to 60 have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. I'll repeat that. All those who are 14 on up have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all the Fridays of Lent. All those from 18 to 60 have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. This binds under the pain of mortal sin. Four closing observations. I've got good news and I have bad news. The good news is that all those who are 14 and up uh, only have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and the Friday's Lent. All those from 18 to 60 only have to fast on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday. 
But the bad news is that all those who are 14 on up only have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all the Fridays of Lent. And all those from 18 to 60 only have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. We have to keep the current rules. There's no question of that. But let's get serious. To get into heaven, you have to do penance. You don't have to kill yourself, but you have to do penance, period. God said, unless you do penance, you will surely perish. There isn't some little drop-down thing that says, except, of course, for Catholics living in the early 21st century. To get into heaven, you have to do penance. It's not optional, and the bar hasn't been lowered. Furthermore, to get into heaven, you have to have the virtue of temperance. That's not optional, and the bar hasn't been lowered. In terms of penance, the new requirements aren't going to cut it if you need to develop the virtue of temperance. Barring an actual miracle, there's absolutely no way that any of us can develop the virtue of temperance if our penitential practices are limited to two days of fasting and abstinence during the year and six Fridays of simple abstinence. It's just not going to happen. It's a reality. That being said, make sure you run your penances by your confessor. The devil tempts pious people by tempting them to extremes, and running your penances past your confessor prevents that, okay? Second, I'm always struck when I'm reading old books about how Catholics used to make fun of the Mohammedans as being a bunch of effeminate sissies and a wimpy, effete religion. Just compare one of their five pillars of their religion, this Ramadan, their 29-day fast, in which between sunrise and sunset they have continence and abstain from eating and drinking. The serious ones aren't even going to swallow their spit till sundown. Just compare that to our modern Lent. They haven't changed a lick. But we sure have. Third, as Dom Garanger wrote almost 140 years ago, quote, How few Christians do we meet who are strict observers of Lent, even in its present mild form. This is 140 years ago. How few Christians do we meet who are strict observers of Lent, even in its present mild form? And must there not result from this ever-growing spirit of immortification a general effeminacy of character, which will lead at last to frightful social disorders? Those nations among whose people the spirit and practice of penance are extinct, are heaping up against themselves the wrath of God and provoking his justice to destroy them by one or other of these scourges, civil discord or conquest. There is an inconsistency which must strike every thinking mind. The observance of the Lord Day on one hand the inobservance of days of penance and fasting on the other. The word of God is unmistakable. Unless we do penance, we shall perish. Close quote. Fourth and last, something each one of us should really meditate upon. In an encyclical he wrote in 1741, Pope Benedict XIV stated, quote, The observance of Lent is the very badge of Christian warfare. But we prove ourselves not to be enemies of the cross of Christ. But we avert the scourges of divine justice. But we gain strength 
against the princes of darkness, for it shields us with heavenly help. Should mankind grow remiss in their observance of Lent, it will be a detriment to God's glory, a disgrace to the Catholic religion, and a danger to Christian souls. Neither can it be doubted that such negligence would become the source of misery to the world, of public calamity, and of private woe. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. That bears repeating. The observance of Lent is the very badge of Christian warfare. But we prove ourselves not to be enemies of the cross of Christ. By it, we avert the scourges of divine justice. But we gain strength against the princes of darkness, for it shields us with heavenly help. Should mankind grow remiss in their observance of Lent, it will be a detriment to God's glory, a disgrace to the Catholic religion, and a danger to Christian souls. Neither can it be doubted that such negligence would become the source of misery to the world, of public calamity, and a private role. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. If you love our Lord, you have the holy season of Lent to prove it. <laughs>